0: Definitely the main goal for Ukrainian policymakers, for Ukrainian experts is to do everything possible and impossible to become a part of European Union. And also next very important part, both from political and worldview, uh, civilization point of view, if you, if you like, is joining NATO. Because for us, NATO plus European Union is something embodied into our foreign policy.
1: This is conversations about Eastern Europe. My name is Emil Jule Nutrop. Consistency is key, and slava Ukraini. Welcome to a conversation with Alexandra Krayev from Kiev in Ukraine. And yeah, I think uh, I'll just skip the word um, straight to you, Alexandra. Um, like, where did we uh, like uh, meet each other in the first place? And uh, yeah, what are you? Uh, what are your background and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, yeah. Greetings. Thank you for having me. Well, basically, we meet at the guest lecture of mine. Uh, I was invited by, by this uh, Students for Liberty organization to give a lecture on the post-Soviet uh, heritage or in culture, in architecture, basically, and in all of the social uh, life of Ukrainian people. And to give some context of what Russia is doing with Ukrainian culture and what is the societal part of Russian aggression against Ukraine. And personally, it's a big topic for me because I'm a international relations specialist in uh, Ukrainian think tank, Ukrainian Prism. So my work is dedicated to informational political side of countering Russian aggression. We started back in 2015. We started from countering Russian hybrid aggression, and now, as you see, we are we are mostly working on the diplomatic side of issues. So we are like. Uh, a semi-state consultancy firm for Ukrainian Ministry for Foreign Affairs, for Ukrainian Parliament, for Ministry of Defense, and for all Ukrainian stakeholders Well, within our capabilities as a foreign relations think tank. Additionally, I'm also uh, trying myself in academia. I'm currently pursuing my PhD in Tarashevchenko National University, and I'm a senior lecturer at the National University of Kyiv mohyla Academy. So uh, additionally to expertise in academia, I'm trying myself in different spheres, making some blogs, uh, writing some articles and making such uh, broadcasts as of today.
1: Very great to hear all that. And um, yeah, it's safe to say that you um, have a lot between your hands um, and has done um, a lot concerning all the things that I'm talking about in this um, yeah, conversation series, which is Eastern Europe and therefore uh, right now especially Ukraine given the um, the war that we're seeing there um so I wanted to just briefly talk a bit about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and here in uh, practical terms what I'm doing is um, a a conversation series on Eastern Europe which um, I started around a year after the full-scale invasion took place and I think I'm doing this because my uh, analysis was that if I wanted to help Ukraine as much as I could do, politically, this sort of seemed to be like the the right thing to do given the political climate also for supporting Ukraine, um which is not necessarily it's an issue that everyone is like collectively uh, agreeing upon, especially in Denmark and um and stuff like that. But if you want to keep pushing that narrative forward, I thought this. Uh, would be the best way to do it because it isn't necessarily the thing that gets like a lot of people on the street every day or uh, every week or something like that so so that's why i'm doing this thing and i'm yeah posting one episode every week so speaking to different persons about ukraine and about eastern uh, europe also in general because um yeah my broader view is that once ukraine wins this will become an issue of also um, the re- the broader region in general, and I think I'm doing all this because I really want to help where I can in the yeah global struggle for freedom, for democracy, for truth, for human rights, and yeah, all these things. Um, so I think uh, yeah, that's that's a bit about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Um, you already talked a lot about what you are doing. Can you maybe try to uh, describe like the personal motivations as well?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, my personal motivation is quite clear. Being a Ukrainian citizen, being uh, a Kiev citizen, well, basically I'm now in my hometown in Kiev working on uh, Ukrainian victory. The motivation is quite simple. Ukraine must prevail because uh, our failure, our defeat will mean just the destruction of Ukraine as a state and Ukrainians as a separate nation. And for us, this is a very simple equation. Either we win or we disappear as a nation. And that is why it is my belief that every Ukrainian should do everything possible in order to ensure our victory, in order to ensure uh, our prevalence in this not only uh, warfare conflict, not only military conflict, but also the cultural uh, aggression that Russia is conducting against Ukraine, and of course on the diplomatic frontier, which is basically my sphere of uh, my sphere of work and I, my job. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you put
1: it pretty simply, and I totally uh, can back uh, that up, that this is an existential war, of course. And I think that was also one of the things I saw right from the beginning when I started to become invested in this, how much of an existential struggle this were, And I was also interested in Ukraine back from 2015 when I was writing about Euromaidan and the yeah, events following that as a part of an assignment so so i think that's also why i'm so strongly uh, attached to this subject um so yeah from that i think we should um head straight into the latest news in the wall and this is a wednesday 11th of october so um if i publish this like (laughs) one week from now maybe the news are a bit different um but i think i'll just give the word to you here because um yeah, I guess, given all you're saying, uh, you um, must uh, follow the war a lot as well. So can you just, uh, yeah, your take on the situation as of now?
0: Well, as of now, the situation is, um, although it will th- sound a little bit cynical, but the situation is quite balanced. We see that Ukrainian forces, especially in the southern part of our front, in the Parisian region, in the Kherson region, that trying still to push Russian defense lines, and for example, if we speak about the small town of Robotine, which is the corner of Russian defense in the Parisian region, we have some progress there. Although this prog- progress is small on a day-to-day basis, basically we're saying about hundreds of meters or several kilometers per day, still... Uh, the very basic point about robotina and all the situation in the south is that ukraine is adopting a so-called pincer movement strategy so we're trying to breach the gap in russian defense line in one particular area where it is possible with current resources and Uh, current capabilities of Ukrainian armed forces, and then to enlarge this gap in defense with additional supplies, with additional forces, and to break the enemy resistance there. So, if speaking about South, Ukrainian forces are still advancing, we still have successes, we still have territories being liberated daily, and sometimes weekly we have the liberated towns and small villages in the South. However, if we speak about the eastern part of the front, namely Luhansk and Donetsk regions, the situation is um, contrary. We see that Russians are trying to counterattack in order to suppress Ukrainian offensive in Luhansk Oblast, especially around the town of Kremina, and in Donetsk Oblast around Divka. We see a lot of action there. Russians are trying to Uh, amalgamate as much units and as much firepower there as possible in order not just to break Ukrainian resistance or to enlarge the zone of control, but basically to force our high command to uh, deter our forces and to give more forces from southern uh, front to the eastern front. The Russian strategy is quite understandable. That's one of the only methods in order to stop enemies uh, advancing. You should make the counterattack of your own in order to uh, willingly stop them and make them rethink their strategy. So, this is this balance I was talking about. we in the south, we're still advancing, we're still enlarging this gap in Russian defenses. In the east, in Luhansk and Donetsk, Russians are doing the same, although, hopefully, as of now, to no avail. Because, for example, if we're speaking about the last three dates, nearly 28 Russian attacks near Kremlin was to no avail, and nearly 12 attacks near Avdivka also brings them no additional successes. So the situation is quite intense, as it was for the previous one and a half year, uh, but uh, we see some progress, we see some movement, and although we do not have all the necessary equipment and all the necessary uh, means to make big successes in a small amount of time uh ukrainian president zelensky today we have a Ramstein meeting in Brussels and today ukrainian president Zelensky said that we are in the final stages of this war like the vast bulk of the fighting the vast bulk of the sufferings are behind us and we we see some kind of a prospective strategy to uh, to destroy Russian forces here and to force them to withdraw from Ukrainian territories unfortunately we do not have the Direct plans or the vision of our high command, but given that General Zaluzhny was one of the most successful strategists in the modern military history, uh, we do have full belief in him and in the capabilities of our forces. So the situation is as follows: it is very intense, it is very hard, but still we see some prospects.
1: Mm. And yeah, my uh, just to um, comment a bit on that um, because. It uh, sounds a bit as if the pattern we are seeing right now is um, the pattern we've seen for. To my, uh, my take would be to say like a month, uh, a month and a half or so, where we've heard a lot of news about Russian Russia moving troops around, um, yeah, to to do what you're talking about um, to the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But I still 100% believe that Ukraine will win and um that is something that i w- i've never backtracked on or or anything I, i've always thought that the uh, pace which they uh, the pace uh, they would do it with um, were based upon how much equipment uh, also they would get from um, from the west and uh, yeah so let's speak a bit about that Alexandra, because um when you talk to people uh like around uh whomever, basically, they they tend to be uh, worried about what is happening in the United States especially. And I, of course, also understand that because we are hearing uh, Republicans say some pretty um, uh, disturbing things, uh, I would put it like that. But, um, but my take is still that although some Republican candidates are saying these things, that you should take that a bit with a grain of salt because the congress in the united states are still uh, behind uh, bipartisan support for ukraine and um and, and it is also different what a president says in the campaign and what the president then will end up doing um so can you uh, talk a bit about um that comment a bit on that and then maybe also some of the diplomatic developments we've seen in europe slovakia for example
0: well, you hit the right spot and you ask the right person because my main focus within my analytical career is uh, um, North America countries, namely the United States, Canada and Mexico. So yes, yeah, that's my, <laughs> my part of responsibility within the analytical uh, community. Well, if you we speak about the United States, you're totally right in saying that if we speak about Congress more generally, not only about the House of Representatives, if we speak about the American President and Presidential Administration, we do see that from strategic point of view, this support is unwavering. Of course, the parliamentary crisis that is still unveiling is a big part of news nowadays, and a lot of being said about, well, Ukraine is a very corrupt nation, Ukraine is not part of U.S. national interest, Ukraine is not something that U.S. should spend money uh, on. But still, we should really differ between the strategic level of communication and support and partnership, and between the uh, political side of issues. That's a very big difference between policy and politics when we speak about America, and especially when we speak about House of Representatives. All in all, everything that was happening in Congress during the last uh, month and a half was about politics. It was about Trumpist part of Republican Party, trying to gain more control on the party itself, trying to gain control on the Speaker of the House. And we see what was the result of this battle, political battle, trying to gain more control in cases surrounding Donald Trump and trying to gain more political points within the electoral pool of the party and unfortunately trumpists were very successful in it we saw that they um, they made an impactful decisions concerning the budget uh, for the next year they made the decision to oust the speaker of the house and they still possess a lot of political power to control the work of the house of representatives at the same way uh, at the same time we should look at the senate and for example Mitch McConnell who is a little of conservative wing of Republican party who said that helping Ukraine is not only a strategic interest for the United States, but it's also quite a profitable ven- venue, because a lot of companies within the United States, especially especially those in the military sphere, in uh, defense uh, capabilities, they gain a lot of new contracts from the federal government. They gain a lot of new working places. They get, a, they get to um, improve their communities, improve their states where they are located. So... Uh, once again, to be very pragmatic in this terms, it's not only about the Americans being the good guys and Ukrainians being the oh, white and fluffy uh, good, white, white and fluffy good guys in the story. It's also about the political and economic interests of Washington. And in this regard, we do see that more senior Republicans, senior American establishment, let, uh, let's call it that way, from both Democratic and Republican party. They do understand that although a lot of political squabble is still going on, they will not uh, diverge from pro-Ukrainian course. They do understand that Ukrainian victory is, first and foremost, a victory for the democratic cause. And if we speak about the broader geopolitical issues for the United States, it it is, of course, about countering China. It is, of course, about countering their so-called alternative democratic regimes, because we do see that there are two polars as of now in foreign, uh, in international relations. That is uh, pro-American democratic countries and pro-Chinese alternative regimes, let's call it that way. And basically Ukraine should become uh, a success story for the United States because, as Biden mentioned last July when he was in Seoul in South Korea, he said that Ukraine and Taiwan is the uh, two focal points of one uh, front, of democracies defending themselves against autocrats and against dictators. And from this point of view, victory of Ukraine is a victory for United States. Each Ukrainian victory is a victory for Biden himself, basically, because he was engaged in Ukrainian topics long before becoming American president. And so from this standpoint, to sum it up, yes, we do see a constitutional, basically, crisis unveiling in the United States. Of course, we will hear, hear a lot of, let's call it Ukrainian skepticism during the next year because of elections, because of everything. And yes, we will see a lot of trouble concerning Donald Trump, his uh, trials, and his uh, so-called presidential campaign. Is It will be here. It, it, is, uh, ex- it is expected crisis. But at the same time, speaking from the strategic standpoint, speaking from geopolitical interests of the United States as a country, as a global democratic leader, Ukraine is inevitably a part of their national interest. And that is why I'm not truly concerned about this political games of the Trumpist part of Republican Party.
1: Mm, Yeah, and you put it... um... Yeah, even better than me, why it is um, maybe uh, not necessarily the correct thing to be like extremely worried and like getting in a sort of like panic sense about what is happening in the United States. Because as you're saying, on all strategic levels, a Ukrainian victory is uh, very much in the interest of basically every single free democracy in the world. And I would even say to every uh, human being, in the world, uh, in the end, but then the problem, uh, of course, is that not all humans are ruled by democratically uh, elected leaders and so on. But um, yeah, you 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 put it very uh, you put it very good. Why uh, it is in everyone's strategic interest with an American victory, and I think uh, we should then briefly talk about what has happened in Israel. From last Saturday and then up until now, but um, but let's not t- t- like spend too much time on that because I also talked uh, already uh, a lot about it and uh, it has been all over the news. So could you maybe just um, give your analysis of how this is all also connected to Ukraine, to Russia, to Iran, and um, and all this? Uh, yeah, that we're hearing about.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, if we speak about, for example, Ukrainian media, the main questions that our journalists and our bloggers were putting against me is, was Putin and Russia involved in preparing this attack? Is it uh, within the interest of Russia to make such an attack? And the answer is very simple. Uh, I cannot be 100% sure that Russia helped Hamas to prepare this attack. But it definitely plays into hands of Putin regime, and it it plays into hands of Russian foreign policy. Because before uh, the current Russian international strategy, which is called a hybrid warfare strategy, well, basically, Russians was the one to create the strategy of hybrid warfare. It was created by General Gerasimov some years ago. Before that, Russia had a strategy of so-called controlled chaos. And the strategy of controlled chaos implies that It is within Russian strategic interest to create as many chaos zones, as many zones of turbulence and crisis in the world as possible, with their direct or indirect support. The issue is, the more crisis there is, the more West will be dedicated to solve this crisis, the more resources they will spend, and less attention they will pay to Uh, basically Russian foreign policy activities, if we speak about Georgia in 2008, if we speak about Transnistria in 1990s, if we speak about any other developments within Russia itself, like cementing Putin regime, uh, anti-democratic laws, and the suppression of civil society, this all lies within the strategy of controlled chaos. Russia was creating such situations as it is now in Israel, for example for decades and decades in order to divert West from country in Russia itself. And so it, it definitely plays uh, within the Russian narrative. It plays within their uh, foreign policy agenda. And uh, we do have some information. For example, Ukrainian uh, central Ukrainian intelligence uh, said that uh, Russian fighters from Wagner Group were training Hamas fighters for the last three months before the Hamas invasion into Israel. And we also do see that Russian politicians, and even Putin himself, they are in full support of what is going on. Even during the last conference in Valdai, which is one of the geostrategic conferences in Russia, that is making some narrative decisions for Russian foreign policy, they all agreed that uh, a new strategy should be employed in the Middle East, and this strategy should involve the uh, independent Palestine as a new state, which is to be formed from the parts of Israel. So basically, we do see a common interest for Hamas, for Russia and for Iran within this conflict, within these developments. And so from Ukrainian standpoint, to put it briefly, we do support Israel wholeheartedly, because we do understand with our own experience, with our own blood and sweat and tears, what it is to be under the attack of a terrorist regime, what it is to lose your loved ones, to lose your homes, your belongings, everything else. And so we do support Israel, and we do understand that from this point on, Israel will definitely support Ukraine more. It is now a, a point of no return for Israel when we speak for geopolitical confrontation. Because before, Israel had some, let's say, space for manure. They can remain neutral, or they can remain centered on their own agenda, their own agenda of security, stability in Middle East. But now, when all the problems coincide, when all the new, well, let's call it politically excess of evil, is trying to influence not only Ukraine or not only Taiwan, but also Israel, it is their time to decide, should they remain within their own small scope of interest in the Middle East, or will they... Uh, adhere themselves to the pro-democratic coalition and also be more engaged in more global issues of countering not only Iran or Hamas or Palestinian autonomy, but also countering Iran plus Russia or countering China, which is supporting these regimes. And so, we do believe that our common grief, our common crisis uh, for Ukraine and Israel will definitely bring us closer and will bring us together. Mm.
1: And I think just to um yeah dive a, a bit deeper into what you were also saying i think uh, this is um, obviously what you can um, to a certain degree call an imperial overstretch where autocrats are trying to instigate or do more than they can actually control and i think you're talking a bit in those lines when you talked about israel now Uh, that Israel would now support Ukraine more because that is going to be, I am 100% sure, just as you, the result of this, because now Israel also know what it is that Ukraine has gone uh, through, like to a certain uh, extent. And that will just make it so much more clear to them why it is that they must also support Ukraine. And also it puts the attention of the whole world way more on this region on this conflict and it does it in a way in which the solidarity with israel has never been bigger than it is right now which um, otherwise uh, i think at least uh, have been a sort of a problem in the west if you look at the development in like the last 10 years and um, i just think um this reminds me a bit about the russian decision to initiate a full-scale invasion of ukraine in the sense that once again i think that it is um, autocratic uh, powers or terrorist powers that are, are pushing above their weight if you just talk about it in like international relations terms and that the backlash from this will be yeah it will lead to a situation way worse than from um, what they started at so so in that way i um i really hope that moving on from here we will see a weakened Hamas, we will see a weakened presence of Islamic terrorist organizations in the Middle East. And I also really hope and think that this will lead to an increase in the overall support of Ukraine, because I think that people now realize um, that these things are, of course, connected, also given the Russian support for um, for this that uh, Hamas has done. But so we we haven't really talked about it into detail, but obviously there were some um, yeah, extremely uh, brutal uh, acts against civilians, civilian uh, Israelis. And what I wrote to you before is that I wanted to talk about what has happened to civilian Ukrainians throughout the war. And um, I think it's because sometimes uh, we lose focus of that because it's uh, such an everyday occurrence but um i think it's uh, what has happened in israel is also an occasion to share some light on that so can you just uh, yeah can you um go through like some of the worst cases and then maybe also mention some things that we may not realize in the uh, like in the general debate in the west
0: yeah, for sure. Well, the worst cases are currently well-known. It is about Irpin and Bucha in Kiev region. It is about Mariupol in Donetsk region. It is, of course, about Izum in Kharkiv oblast. It is about Kherson, one of the biggest cities that were occupied by Russians. We should point out that it is not uh, generally known, but in each city, in each village that is liberated by Ukrainian forces, we still find torture chamber in local schools or in local, even kindergartens or in local hospitals. Everywhere where Russian occupied forces are located, are situated, they create torture chambers, chambers for Ukrainian citizens who, as they suspect, uh, are still trying to help our defenders in order to liberate this specific territory. So these uh, occurrences of torture, rape, of killings, there are not just something to be a part of the news, they are basically everywhere, as you rightly pointed out. But the biggest strategy of all with uh, the most horrendous losses of human lives and the most horrendous destruction is uh, definitely Mariupol. Because it is not widely known, but Mariupol was uh, one of the biggest cities in Ukrainian uh, eastern regions. Before the full-scale invasion, it had the population of nearly half a million people there. And as of now, no more than 80,000 of them still live in Mariupol. And most of them are new Russians coming to the city to live in the new apartments that they are trying to build on the ashes of the city that was Mariupol. So basically, as of now, we still do not know uh, nearly several hundred thousand people who are lost or missed in action in Mariupol during the period of Russian invasion. So it's a horrendous uh, tragedy, but we do not have enough information even to understand the scope.
1: Do you have, i sorry, do you, do you maybe have anything um, that you can compare it with um, in like his, his historical terms, um, maybe to, to give some of the listeners like Yeah, just an inch of an understanding.
0: Well, um, it's very hard to... Well, basically any city that was demolished to the ground, which population flew the war or was destroyed on site. If we speak about the Second World War, nearly every city that put some resistance against Nazis or put some resistance against the Red Army was destroyed in a similar manner. If we speak about other histories, we can say about the siege of Antwerp during the wars of Netherlands liberation when the whole city was just uh, either demolished or burned out and all the population was killed or moved to other directions. So we we see something that is similar to warfare and politics in, for example, 17th century, 18th century, or in the beginning of the Second World War, not something that we will wait in 21st century. So the basic barbarism of human nature. And additionally... uh, Unfortunately, I did not see any information in Western media about it, but in each liberated city, especially the big ones, we do find a lot of Russian crematoriums, so sp- specific big uh, ovens to dis- to burn bod- the bodies of the deceased Ukrainians and to some extent even deceased Russian soldiers, because a lot of these crematoriums are used for Russian uh, killed-in-action soldiers. They do not want to present clear statistics on their losses, and they do not want us to know the clear statistics on the civilian losses. And so they just destroy the evidences. And the latest uh, development of uh, such scale was in Kharkiv Oblast, in the small village of Groza. It, It is a small village of no more than 350 people. And during one of the funeral processions uh, during the dinner after the funeral in remembrance of Ukrainian warrior from Groza, who died uh, several weeks ago. Uh, an Iskander-type rocket hit the cafe where the dinner took place, and 51 civilians were killed, including several ch- children. The youngest was six years old. And uh, for a small, sea, a small village with a population of 350 people, 51 deceased is a great numbers. And today, uh, during another funeral procession in Kherson, this funeral procession was attacked by drones, and uh, uh, fortunately no one was killed, several people got hurt, but there is nothing that, uh, uh, that possesses threat to their life, but the drone was directly aimed at the funeral cortege, at the bus where the body of the defender lies, because they were on their way to the cemetery, and so it seems to me that uh, Russians are not only afraid of uh, Ukrainian armed forces while they are alive and, and attacking them they are also afraid of Ukrainian defenders even when they are deceased and even when our families want to remember their warriors Russians are still trying to destroy them at that time
1: and um to talk further about this um about the civilians and also about the way that we uh, that we view it um Yeah, in the part of the world that I come from, because I think that at least some of the reason for why we are not talking more about this is maybe that when we look uh, at the news, when we follow the war and when we hear about the lost numbers and uh, about how many people that are dying from um, like day to day or month to month, uh, civilians and so on. I think maybe we um, have a um, tendency to um, then within our uh, with, with our feelings maybe to um, look back at the Second World War and some of the other wars that has been um, with a lot of losses, and then we maybe think, but the civil- maybe they, they, the the cause is not s- such uh, like insane for the civilians because uh, they have the. Um, like um, air protect systems now, uh, like missile defense systems and all that as well. And they are shooting down a lot. But um, then we uh, sort of lose track of the fact that, as you're saying, um, now only 80,000 people live in Mariupol. And it is not just like that. Then all the rest of the citizens then fled to other parts of Ukraine. Of course, um, all the people that uh, got to decide. Um, their own fate about where to flee they fled to another part of Ukraine but that did not happen to all the citizens in Mariupol for example so so it's just so yeah can you just um, maybe talk about that um, as well and maybe the, the fate of some of these citizens yes
0: well basically uh, one small uh, reference is the air defense system where definitely very thankful for all the support we receive with the anti-rocket defense system and anti-air defense system because, basically, during the last winter season, I was all, all, I was definitely all the time in Kiev, uh, in Ukraine, and it was a very harsh winter. When you do not you do not know when you will receive uh, electricity, when you will once again receive heat, when your batteries will be warm once again, when you. Uh, are not sure uh, about your connection, about your mobile phone working properly, about your internet connection, about anything. And that is all because of the Russian forces shelling Ukrainian energy infrastructure constantly on the day-to-day basis. And that is why we do truly understand the importance of anti-air defense system, and we are very grateful for them. And that is why it is very important that even today during the Rammstein meetings, and one of the main topics is definitely providing Ukraine with more Patriot system, with more T systems and everything else. It is very helpful. However, at the same time, we should understand that the Ukrainian territory is very big. It's like, it's still one of the biggest countries in Europe and we cannot uh, for, for 100% protect all the territory. And for example, if we speak about the capital, Kyiv we speak about capital city, there is more than 93% of success rate of of, uh, anti-air defense system. So we destroy uh, 93% of all projectiles, rockets, drones, everything else that Russia is sending towards Kyiv. But if we speak about, for example, Kharkiv Oblast, or if we speak about the front lines in Donetsk and Luhansk, the efficiency rate of anti-air defense systems drops to 36%, or if you speak about Kharkiv itself, it's 64%. So we don't have enough capabilities, we do not have enough specialists, we do not have enough of anything to protect 100% of Ukrainian territory. And for the last three weeks, if I'm not mistaken, Russians are trying to probe a new way of air attacks on Ukraine. Like, for example, one of the tactics they employ is that they're sending a swarm of Shahed drones, something between 20 to 35 um, Shahed drones. They have a very specific trajectory of flying, so you cannot predict where they will land eventually. And so all of our uh, defense systems are concentrating on the Shahed drones. And amid them, in some lack of time between the Shahed drones starting and ending, they put in an Iskander uh, hypersonic rocket. And so basically, whilst all of our anti-air defense systems are concentrated on the drones, they still are able to put through several rockets that uh, uh, goes either undetected or goes too fast for our Simpsons to reconcentrate on the rockets. So the situation is constantly changing, and it is hard on the uh, uh, civilians, but it's much more harder for our military personnel. And concerning your question about Mariupol, uh, we do know that, several, um, if I'm not mistaken, Several hundred thousand, for something like 200,000, civilians were able to evacuate to Ukrainian-controlled territory. But nearly 100,000 people were put through the so-called filtration camps. Russia, during the city of Mariupol, Russia established a series of filtration camps around the city. So basically, what is a filtration camp? It's a small checkpoint where they check your phone for any pro-Ukrainian groups on Telegram, WhatsApp or any other messenger. They check your emails, they check your messages, everything. And if you are considered um, a risky citizen for the uh, occupation uh, authorities, you just disappear. So we have no track of people who went through the filtration camps and was considered risky for the occupation authorities in Mariupol or in any other city. We do know that several thousand people were transferred to Russia by Russians. They call it evacuation. And, uh, for example, I have a friend of mine from Mariupol. She, wa- she was able to evacuate herself to Poland in the start of the conflict because she was in Kyiv at that time. But her father and mother, they went through the filtration camp and the ended up in term in the central Russia. And so they were able, thanks God, they were able to get to the border between Belarus and Poland. They get some kind of um, temporary uh, permit to leave Belarus. They get to Poland and they were free at last. But she was uh, forced to spend uh, several thousand dollars in order to be able to assure the transportation from Perm to Belarus and then from Belarus to Poland. It's not... a. It's not a direct legal way for our authorities or for the relatives to evacuate their loved ones, their relatives from Russia, while they are transferred to Russia. And of course, the biggest problem for us is uh, the problem of children being forcibly transferred to Russia. As of now, according to Ukrainian authorities, we, we definitely knew about 15,000 children that are left without parents and were, and were transferred to Russia. They were forcibly transferred to new families or to the family-type facilities. Officially, 15,000 children. Some unofficial sources from the civil society organizations tell us between twenty to 45,000 people, but we still have no clear statistics on the issue. Uh, Ukrainian government is making uh, a lot of efforts to rescue our children and as of now we were able to liberate, let's call it, liberate 500 of them. So it's still a very small number compared to all those who were transferred to Russia, but still we are doing everything we can. And uh, Russians are playing their old Soviet style games because they are not concentrating these children in one specific area or in one specific region. Some of Ukrainian children, as we now know, they ended up in Novosibirsk, in the far eastern part of Russia. Some of them ended up in Moscow. Some of them ended up up in Rostov-on-Don, so the small city in the um, western part of Russia. So they are trying to disseminate them among Russian families in the Russian-speaking territories they are telling them propaganda lies that uh, Ukraine is already a non-existent state, that Kiev has fallen, that there is no Ukrainian army, nobody is going to save them, and they should start a life a in the Ru- in Russia, or in New Russia, as they call the uh, territories of Ukraine that they have captured. So we know that it's an act of genocide, Tra- forcibly transferring children from the occupied territory is an act of genocide, and uh, it was a very good development that International Court of Justice uh, put, a, uh, put Putin and their, um, how do they call it, child ambassador, Rivova Bilova, they are now international criminals because of this act of genocide. And the main part of the genocide took place in and around Mariupol.
1: And um, I think the problem, which is uh, the second reason for why we don't speak about this more, is that it, is obviously an extremely difficult topic to talk about because of the the level of um, atrocity that is has been, is being, and will be committed against civilian uh, u- Ukrainians. are just so um, yeah, it is such uh, so out- outrageous, and um, I just think that what people need to take with them if they listen to this conversation. Is that this is about hundreds of thousands of um, Ukrainians that um, are affected by this, and then obviously also all the people that are that are then relatives or friends or anything with this with um, yeah all these um, Ukrainians that um, have suffered such um, destinies. Um, but I think it it also um, can lead us on to um, like. Um, the next thing I will I want to talk about, which is um, about values, because we are um, like heading towards um, the end, uh, and I wanted, all, and I always want to finish off with this um, subject. And to me, um, and this is something that I've said a lot of times, but it has maybe been a while since I last said it in this show. But that I really, really believe that politics are about people, and when I say i mean it is about people it is to be understood as how is how is uh, politics possibly um affecting people and what could maybe um have been done differently or what could we do different from now on that will lead to a way better destiny for a lot of people um and and that is what i think uh, ukraine is and what it should be for us in the west um like of course there is this strategic point as well um how it will benefit our populations as well but i I really think that the guiding principle should be that there are so many so many things we could do for the ukrainian people and um actually that there is a lot of doable things as well like things we are not doing but that we could be doing um and it's not to put blame upon anyone but it's just to um to lay it out there so i think that will be one of the last things um that i will say um And uh, now I will give the word to you on this um, topic as well, and then maybe I will comment a bit also.
0: Well, uh, basically, my point is that we should understand that uh, we are at the crossroads. It's not only about Ukraine. It's not only about Russia. It's about us as a, uh, let's say, say international community, because uh, Russian full-scale aggression against Ukraine opened a Pandora box in the world. Because every international system has its, as you rightly suggested, has its moral codes, its values, its principles of conduct. Well, if to put it cynically, every international system has its uh, game rules. And so basically our rules was that war is bad. You should not start wars, or in case you started war, our international uh, law and international organizations should, should do everything possible in order to stop it at the lowest cost possible and as fast as possible. And also international security uh, organizations should also do their part. Full-scale invasion of Russia into Ukraine uh, on the 24th of February last year uh, proved that nothing of these game rules works, nor the principles of international law, nor nor the international organizations. And so all other regimes in the world and the countries that have some territorial disputes or historical problems, everybody of them looked at Russia and said, well, we have our chance, we have our opportunity. And that is why, because of Russian aggression against Ukraine, because of Russian atrocities and because of Russian state terrorism, we have a lot of conflicts in Africa currently brewing. We have a lot of new military juntas in Africa. We have a lot of conflict in Central Asia. We have a war coming between Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. We have a lot of troubles in Far East Asia, for example, around Taiwan and around the South China Sea. We have a lot of uh, quasi-military movements in Latin America. We have a lot of uh, misconceptions and misunderstandings and uh, pro-populist movements in Europe because of that Russia opened this Pandora box of this development, of this crisis. And that is why I do truly agree with you that we should return to the principle and value-based order. And in order to do that, we should all combine our forces and stop the uh, war-increasing aggression, or should I say, aggressions, because Russia started it, but a lot of other countries, terrorist regimes, they took the trend and they uh, expanded the aggression. They made this aggression and this crisis global. And so when, when we hear a lot of, for example, from the global South expert, from Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, they all say, well, Ukraine is the issue between two states. Why should we care? Why should we do something about Ukraine? Why should we help? And our, my answer is always the same because it's, it is in your interest to provide stability. It is in your common interest to make uh, the rule of law the pivot of our civilization, not the uh, rule of force, because it's the force of law, not the law of force that should guide human race and international community. And that is why helping Ukraine and especially stopping Russian aggression and stopping any other aggression in the world. It is not about one particular state or one particular group of people or one particular ethnicity. It is about all of us as humans. It is about stability and it is about future peace. But uh, my last point is that uh, sending less weapons or providing less support or talking less about something harmful or something bad will not solve the problem. In order to stop aggression, we should have the means to stop the aggression. It is not about saying, well, you shouldn't do that, or you shouldn't have done that. It is about stopping the aggressor and making sure that such an aggression will not be possible in the future. Because every evil, be it a small evil or a grandiose calamity, every evil, if it is not put to an end, will surely uh, recourse and will surely repeat itself. So we as an international community must put an end to these evils uh, coming and coming.
1: Mm. And I think that's a very good message to um, go out on. And my very last point would um, be that, um, and this is an academic expression as well, um, but I really believe that Ukraine is this critical juncture in the struggle between democracies and, uh, and freedom on the one side and then Uh, autocracies and um, yeah autocrats with a loss uh, for power um, that has no end on uh, the other side to put it very briefly and that just makes it so much more important that ukraine win this war because that would send the signal to the rest of the world that democracies are still strong and that the values we are fighting for is very much something that people are willing to sacrifice um, themselves for. And related to that point, and this is something that I've said sometimes as well, is that the level of support that the West provides will also be something that is a signal afterwards to the rest of the world. So, um, yeah, to that point, it is also just so much more important that we increase our level of weaponry support to Ukraine, that we send the long-range missile systems that ukraine needs that we slow down upon our hesitancies towards letting ukraine decide more freely where to strike and how to strike and um, just to make a political point that maybe goes a, a bit above the line normally i don't have any issues with ukraine attacking targets inside russia because if they are not allowed to do that then how should they ever make themselves uh, able to be in a situation in which they are not under the threat of Russia anymore. Um, yeah, unless something happens within Russia that could also happen, but that's another discussion. Thanks a lot for participating, Alexandra. And, um, if you want to talk anytime in the future, that could, um, also be something to do, but that, uh, that's it for today. Hey. My pleasure. Thank you very much.